We're continuing our prologue to the Messiah sermon series. We're continuing talking about uh, ways that we can learn about who Jesus is in the Old Testament. And so real quick, this is the answer that we're going to be, this is the, the answer to the question we're going to be asking today. We're going to be able to answer at the end of this, Jesus is, all right? So you will know Jesus is at the end of this, okay? If you don't know, the proper sound for three dots is right there, all right? Now, why is this not moving forward? Move forward with me. There, nope, nope, uh, there we go. All right, I'm ready to start. So, as we're working through this sermon series, one thing that we have to ask ourselves and that people are currently always asking about Jesus, and they asked about it throughout his lifetime, is this question, who is Jesus? It's a question that has plagued many for many a year, right? And from the church, we always approach it from the side of Jesus and then looking backwards to try to answer that question, right? But in Jesus' day, they sort of went in the other direction. They looked at things that were happening in the Old Testament. They were trying to figure out who that person would be. So the real question that a lot of times people were asking in the Old Testament is, who is the one who is coming to rescue the world? And this may sound like a weird thing to say whenever you read through the Old Testament. You may not catch it. It's a theme that runs through, but it runs throughout the entire Old Testament. Starting in Genesis, whenever the world is broken, it straight up says after that that there will be a son of Adam and Eve, a person who comes from them, who will break Satan and his power, right? Stepping forward to Abraham, we see that there is one who is going to be one of his offspring who will bless the entire world or bless all nations through him. Stepping a little bit further, we learn about how there's one coming who will be greater than Moses and more of a prophet who can proclaim more and more about who Jesus, who, uh, bleh, not that, oh, we're hiding, you don't know who I'm talking about yet, ooh, right? That will be coming and that will proclaim God's good word perfectly. There will be one coming who is wiser than Solomon and better than him. There is one coming who is going to establish a kingdom that reigns forever. And there will be one coming who completely fixes everything. They will establish a new covenant. They will allow God's people to be with him again in ways they had not done in centuries or millennia. And he will reign. And so as the people of Israel were stepping into times like Palestine, times in the first century, whenever they were stepping into uh, the Roman occupation, one of the things they were continuously looking for is who is the one who will come, who will fix the world. Now to them, they thought fixing the world meant regaining political power and taking back over their land that was given to them by God. They thought it meant being able to cast off the yoke of the unbelievers who were over top of them and being able to reign and rule with the king that was in the line of David as their own political entity. They wouldn't have to suffer under the rules and regulations of a group that went against God and his will. They would instead be able to reign in a way in which a ruler would call to glorify God, right? So they were expecting someone to come and take over. And one thing they were constantly looking for is who is this person? Who's gonna come and do it? Especially around the time whenever Jesus was walking on the earth, there was this messianic expectation that was occurring. People were expecting the Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for anointed one. This anointed person who would come forward and fix the brokenness of the system that people were stuck in, right? And they were looking for him. And a lot of people claimed to be him. A lot of people claimed to be this anointed one or this Messiah. There was a person named Judas 
the Galilean, who claimed to be this Messiah. And he gathered up an army, and he cast out from the temple some of the people who were uh, Roman. And he killed a lot of people who were sympathizers with Gentiles as opposed to sympathizers with Judaism. And then he was captured along with 200 of his people and crucified oh, so much and killed. Numerous other revolts happened. Numerous other people came and said, I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the one you're looking for. And so the religious right, were always, the religious people were always looking for who's the one who's coming, who's going to come. So we're going to read this section of scripture real quick that gives us a small amount of one of the ways that the person who is coming is identified and one of the ways in which we can see what it's like. The two things we're going to talk about today are actually in the Old Testament relatively small portions of prophecies about the person who will come, but they take up a much bigger life whenever that person comes. In Psalm 2, it says this. This is verses 1 through 9 of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers, against, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my holy one, my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And so in the psalm we see this theme kicking in where it says that the Lord will send his anointed, which is the word for Messiah, which if you didn't know, the Greek term for Messiah is Christ. That's what Christ means, anointed one. He will send his anointed one who will be a king over top of all of Zion. And he calls this king his son, right? You are my son, today I've begotten you. He says this, so let's skip that. So one of the terms that is used to identify God's Messiah is that he will be a son of God. And this may seem like a thing, all right, weird, yes, little, little thing in there talking about in, in a psalm, okay. This is also hearkening back to something that happened back in the book of 2 Samuel, whenever David is dealing with the fallout of some of his sin, and he is going to have a son take over, and God is kind of allowing David to know that, no, what I'm doing is bigger than what you think it is. And he's saying that he is going to take one of David's sons and set him onto a throne forever, and this son will be like God's son, not just David's, right? And his reign will be forevermore. Now, it's speaking first of David's son Solomon, the point of that is pointing more at Solomon than anyone in the future. But people who were coming after this and reading the scriptures started to have some questions as to why this was applying to Solomon only. Because Solomon, sure, he had a reign that lasted a long time, but it didn't last forever. Maybe there's someone else in the line of David coming who will fulfill this son of God who will reign forever. Maybe there's someone coming who will do that, right? So the psalmist wrote about it and what God was saying would happen, that a son would come and reign forevermore in Zion. And so whenever you step into the time of Jesus, sometimes Jesus was walking and talking and speaking to people and proclaiming about the kingdom of God coming, the kingdom of God coming. And the people would get confused, and they say things like, are you the son of God then? This is Jesus on trial. The Pharisees are putting him on trial, and they're asking him, 
who do you say you are? And the phrase they ask is, are you saying you're the son of God? They're not saying it in the generic sense, all the sons and daughters of God, because that's a phrase that was used for Israel sometimes. They're not saying it, obviously, in the sense of angels. That's not what they're asking him, because angels are sometimes called sons and daughters of God, too. They're asking specifically, are you saying you're the one who's coming in the line of David, whose kingdom will reign forevermore? I love Jesus' response. You say I am. He actually doesn't say who he is at that moment, but he points out that they themselves are proclaiming who he is by what they're doing. That's fun. But there's another one, too. There's another version, another word that is used that is spoken about in the Old Testament that was also one that people would assume was speaking about the Messiah. And this came in the book of Daniel. And it's Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And it said this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancients of days and was presented before, presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so another phrase that is used for the Messiah is son of man. Really interesting thing. I'm going to toss this out. This is just one that I enjoy because of the way I enjoy things going cross-eyed sometimes. Son of man is a more divine term for the Messiah, while son of God is a more manly term than divine. Son of God speaks of human things, speaks of human rulership. Son of man speaks of divine rulership, which is just fun. I don't have anything huge or theological about that. I just enjoy it, that they're crossed over in my brain. But then we have this pop up. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So he asked them, all right, so they're saying that the Son of Man, this person in Daniel, who do people think that is? And they say the people say John the Baptist, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, or a prophet, right? And Jesus' response after that is not, all right, then who do you think the Son of Man is? His response is, who do you say I am? Jesus is saying he's the Son of Man. Who am I actually? And Simon says, you are the Christ, or the Anointed One, the Messiah. And he equates it with Son of the Living God. You are the Son of God. See, Jesus is, very simply, the Son of God and the Son of Man. And now both of these sections, while talking about different things, one more divine than the other, one more human than the other, they both point to one very overwhelming thing. Jesus is king. He is king over everything. All authority and power and dominion has been given over to him. Everything is under his control and under his rule. Everything is his. He is king. So if you want to know the answer to that first question, I want you to take this and put it in your brain. Jesus is king. You ready? Jesus is king. Okay? Jesus is king. Right? Jesus is king. <laughs> so whenever you're going next week and you're saying, I wonder what this sermon was about, what is the answer to that? Jesus is king, right? Thank you. Now I'm going to say this as well. This may seem like, okay, yeah, good, Jesus is king, got it right, I understand, next, right? 
I understand. But there are huge implications to this concept that Jesus is king. So what that he's king? What does that matter? We've seen rulers before. We've seen kings before. We've seen presidents before. We've seen political power before. Who cares if he's king? Well, there's some important things to understand. One is this. The king reigns. He actually reigns. He is in charge. He rules. He is the one whose opinion matters. He is the only one whose opinion you have to worry about. Imagine if you were in a court and there was one overruling king who ruled over everything whose opinion matters and who has the power to say, you are in my favor, you are not in my favor, you live, you die, whatever, right? And imagine that the people who are around you, like, are indifferent to your existence or don't even like you, right? And that's sad. I wouldn't like it if I was in that place. But if the king liked me, I'd still be secure. If the king is the one who cares, I'm fine, even if everything else around me is breaking apart. He's what matters in that situation, right? If Jesus truly reigns over everything, over all of creation, over every individual person, if he really rules, he's the only one we really have to care about. Stuff can be breaking down around you, and you can trust that he's reigning. People can be having hard times, and you can trust that he's reigning. You can be despised by men and despised by the world, and you can trust that he is reigning, and you can care about his opinion more. This is why the apostles, when they went out, they could go out in a way that was despised by everyone. People didn't like them. Who are you to say that my lifestyle should change because of who I am? Who are you to say that I should worship this person as opposed to Caesar? Who are you to say that everything that I believe before is wrong? People don't like being told that, right? Do you like being told whenever you're wrong? I don't like it whenever I'm blatantly wrong. I can know I'm wrong and still not like it whenever someone tells me I'm wrong. 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 I don't like it sometimes, right? The apostles carried forth a message saying that people were lives, everything they believed needed to be changed. And people didn't like them for it, but they didn't care because they were working under the favor of the king. They trusted that he was reigning. And here's an even bigger deal. If he is king of everything and reigns over everything and has offered himself up so that you can have relationship with him, which is what Jesus did, you can approach the king. You can go to him. Like, we sometimes completely misunderstand this. We don't think about the fact that we can actually uh, go to the king and ask him for anything. But we can. We can ask him for anything. <sighs> All of my notes are hiding. This is mean. We can ask him for anything. Now, here's an interesting concept. Who you ask permission from is often the person that you are saying has authority over you, right? Yeah. You ask for permission from the people who have authority over you. If someone else owns the car that I want to drive, they have authority over that car. I'm supposed to ask them before I take it. If I don't ask them, I'm doing what's called stealing. And you're not supposed to steal. Borrowing without returning is a bad thing. 
Just throwing it out there. It's my favorite euphemism. I'm not stealing. I'm borrowing with no intent to return. I mean, sorry. If someone has authority over something, you're able to talk to them about it, and you can ask them about it, right? And what they want to do matters with it more than what you want to do with it, right? If Jesus reigns over you and your life, who should you be talking to about how that life is supposed to go? Do you have right to ignore what he wants to do whatever you want to do? No, you're taking it from him. It belongs to him, right? But here's the really beautiful part, too, because we don't just approach him uh, scared or meekly or worried. We get to approach him as favored sons and daughters, even though we don't deserve the favoritism because Jesus came as a perfect son and offered us what he deserves. Jesus gives us favor before God so we can boldly approach him and bring to him anything without worry or without care. We can approach him as one who is loved by him. And we can approach him in faith and like a child. There's a fun little story. I forget who actually said it. I believe it was Moody, but don't quote me on that. But it's this concept that there is no one in the world who would ever think to have the audacity to approach a king and ask them for a cup of water when the king is sleeping, except a kid. The kid's thirsty. He'll do it. Oh, hey, you. I'm thirsty. So thirsty, Daddy. Thir thirsty. You guys are laughing. Oh, that's, my, that's my night, like every night. I'm thirsty. Can I go downstairs? I want a glass of water. I'm hungry. In that voice. I didn't make it up. That's a perfect reenactment of the voice. Now, you see, kids are willing to ask for what they want, and they're not scared of who they're asking it from, right? If there's something that you need, don't be afraid to ask your father for it. He's not going to be angry at you. Now, side note, he may not give it to you because it may not actually be what you need. A good king, a good father will not give to people things that will harm them. I don't care how much Anna asks me if she can hold a firework. The answer to that one is no at the moment. Huh? At the moment. She's got to be at least seven before I start handing her explosives. No. Okay. What? All right. Anywho. You got it? There will be a time. We'll have these conversations later. <laughs> Different conversation. Okay. Yeah. Good kings don't give bad things to people, but good kings don't withhold things people need, right? They will not in anger or wrath withhold something that someone needs. They will be just, kind, loving, merciful. And that's why you can approach him boldly, because this king is merciful, perfectly merciful. He has offered you perfect mercy. Everything that you need forgiven of, he forgave because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Now, that actually brings us to a quick other point here. That means that what he says matters, actually. If the king reigns, and if you can approach him boldly, and if he has all authority, then what he says actually matters. You'd be amazed how often people love the concept of Jesus and forgiveness, but dislike the concept of Jesus and repentance. 
and Jesus and life change or sanctification. Whenever we say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you are saying you recognize that he has authority over every aspect of your life. Salvation comes from recognizing exactly who Jesus is and continuously submitting yourself to his authority. This means that what you think matters in your life doesn't matter nearly as much as what he thinks matters. This means that what you want to see happen in your life doesn't matter as much as what he thinks matters. It doesn't matter if I want to be a famous actor. It doesn't matter if I want to be a politician. It doesn't matter if I want to rule the world. If he doesn't want it, it's not going to happen. And it shouldn't happen, and I shouldn't be seeking after it. And we say what he says matters. And many of us are like, yes, what Jesus says matters. It matters to me in my heart. It matters a lot. And we need to save and protect what he says to keep it safe, right? And we claim these things, and yet somehow we still get into rants on Facebook, right? What he says matters, except for whenever I'm supposed to be loving those who are my enemies. What he says matters, except for whenever I'm supposed to realize that I'm supposed to forgive others as I am forgiven. What he says matters, except when it deals with this part of my life or this part of my life or this part of my life, right? No, if he's Lord, what he says matters, and it should matter to you. And you should do whatever is in your power to serve him well. Side note, he served you perfectly. He is not asking anything more of you than he was willing to do himself. If you think it's humbling to give up part of who you are, to give it over to Christ, imagine how much he humbled himself to step onto a cross on your behalf. There is no amount of humbling you can do that would overcome the humbling he did. Which leads me... No, sorry. This is, I skipped one. Ambassador. Then we'll go to the next one. Here's the weird part. If, you, if he is the king, and if we are his spokespeople, if we are the ones who are his, we are his ambassadors in the world. You carry with you the message of the king. And you carry it to places that don't currently have it. And every time you step out into the world, you are an ambassador of his love and his goodness and his mercy and his presence and the reconciliation he offers. You are an ambassador everywhere. You're an ambassador at work. You're an ambassador at school. You're an ambassador with your friends. You're an ambassador in your family. You're an ambassador here. Hopefully, there will be people in this room who don't know who Jesus is, and here we will be his ambassadors just as much as out there. And ambassadorship is interesting because we think of it as how we think of ambassadors now, where it's like, all right, yeah, it's a person who's there as a figurehead, probably gave a whole bunch of money to a political campaign and therefore got to be put up into some posh location or did something really bad and got sent to, like, Siberia. Whatever. Sorry, you get to be the ambassador of whatever the worst country is right now. I don't like you, right? And they don't really matter because the king can communicate to whoever they want, right? But ambassadors whenever Paul was writing that we are ambassadors for Christ, had a heck of a lot more influence than you would think. Consider this. Whenever the actual American Revolution was happening, the ambassador to France, the one who was negotiating everything, had to negotiate everything with the French people about, hey, would you please come and help us so that we don't die? A lot? A whole bunch? We need you. Please uh, send your ships and your people. That person had to negotiate in faith on behalf of an entire nation whenever communication with that nation took multiple months. 
they represented it completely. The majority of people who were going to be speaking to a U.S. ambassador back then had no one to equate with the United States other than that person. That person was the United States. Whenever Paul says, you are the ambassador of Christ, that's the kind of ambassadorship he's talking about because Roman ambassadorships were even longer because you were walking most places as opposed to taking a boat. The ambassador of a king in Roman times was, for all intents and purposes, the king to the people they represented, they spoke to. See, whenever you go out into the world, you don't just have to kind of look like Christ. You basically are him to the world. They should be able to look at you and say, oh, that's who Jesus is. Maybe not perfectly, but I can get the gist of who he is because of who you are. So everywhere you go, with every interaction, with everyone you speak to, you represent him. And finally, oh my goodness. Oh, I duplicated one thing twice and didn't put in the one that mattered. Here's the final one. If he reigns, if he rules, if he is king, we should be humble. I want you to understand this concept. Have you guys ever heard of the thing of someone serves at the pleasure of the person in charge, right? Like all of the cabinet members in the U.S. serve at the pleasure of the president. If the president requests your resignation, that person is gone, right? In a kingdom, everyone serves at the pleasure of the king, right? We serve at his pleasure, which means that whenever we do things or do things well, we shouldn't take pride in them of ourselves because we're simply doing something at his pleasure, Consider this. I enjoy teaching. I really like it. I love preaching, sitting up here talking to you people. I enjoy doing silly things to get your attention. I like uh, people looking at me. Hi. Hello, eyes. You make me happy. No? But, oh my goodness, does Jesus need me to teach you? No. A, he has much better teachers available if he wants to use another teacher, right? He could kick me out of here and bring in David Platt, right? I love him. He's a good guy. He could remove me, and he could put in name person you like learning from. If you really like accents, maybe it's, what's his name? Erwin Lutzer. Oh, no, who's the guy from Scotland? Alistair Begg, yeah. If you like accents, you can bring him in. Oh my goodness, I love listening to his sermons. I don't pick up half it, but I'm just enjoying the R's rule. Oh, it's so nice. He's got such a brogue. If he wanted to bring in teachers who could teach better than this, he easily can. And he can do it without any teacher. He has the ability to teach you himself. He likes to do so, and he will. Please trust him to do so. He can teach you too. Uh, he chooses to use people like me not because I am necessary, but because he likes doing it, and it's a way in which I can glorify him. Every way that he uses you, it's not because he needs you. It's because he likes you and wants to use you, and he enjoys seeing you fulfill that purpose. And you may think, oh, this is a great uplifting sermon. I'm not necessary, right? Nothing matters, I don't matter. But it really is, guys. It really is. How humbling is it to say, you know what? My role is not necessary for Christ's plan of salvation. I don't matter that much. But on the flip side, 
how much weight does it take off your chest to say, oh my goodness, I can't break it to the point that he can't fix it. If I mess up, he can overcome that. If I die, he can bring in someone else to preach easily. He can bring someone better. If Jake, for some reason, has to move, he can bring someone in to fulfill Jake's role. If it works, you are the one who everyone relies on. It gives a little bit of weight off your chest if you realize, no, if he wants someone else to do so, he can do so, which means it frees me up to do other things he says to do. I can rest. I can trust. I can release what's going on. It doesn't actually all fall on you. Not everything falls on you. He can overcome anything. This humility helps because it means that as you go throughout your work, if you live in high stress or high, high pressure jobs, if you have a whole bunch of kids and you don't know what to do with them sometimes, know that he knows exactly what to do and he can either empower you to do it or ensure that someone will do so. You don't have to be afraid and think that everything falls on you. It doesn't. It all falls on him, and his shoulders are big enough to bear it. This is what I love about our king. He completely reigns. He overcomes all things. He is far bigger and better than me. He is far bigger and better than you. He is far more glorious and wonderful and humiliating in a good way, humbling. For some reason, he loves me. And for some reason, he loves you. For some reason, he cares for me. And for some reason, he cares for you. And for some reason, he served me. And he serves me. And for some reason, he serves you. This is the kind of king we serve. If that's who he is, who are we? So say it with me again. Jesus is king. Jesus is Jesus. That's tautological. <laughs> Jesus is your king. Let's worship our king together. Oh, yes. Sorry.
I love that concept, though. Because how often, who here knows someone who is in some way, shape, or form relatively famous? Yeah. Jake, just raise your hand. You know you only have 15 people. Come on now. Right? And don't you like it whenever you hear someone else just mention that person a little bit on the side? Like, I know him. You like them? Ooh. I know a person who's in 10th Avenue North. Ooh. Right? I met Mr. Belding at one point. From Saved by the Bell? Totally did. Soapbox Derby, he was there. Got to have a conversation with Mr. Belding. He's not as cool in real life. But have you ever met someone who just like, oh, can name drop the top of the hat? You have the right to name drop Jesus. That's kind of fun, right? Guess what? You know that guy? I know the king. He's more powerful than him. I don't care if you know Mr. Belding. What? That's my most famous person. I'm sorry. <sighs> I was raised in the 90s. All right. <laughs> Any other thoughts, comments, suggestions, questions? Clarifying points, notes? I just really like the fact that your note was that you liked his note. That's a healthy social media interaction, by the way, right there. In case you're wondering, that's what it's supposed to look like. I appreciate your comment. It makes me feel uplifted for this reason. Try that one out. All right. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we go throughout our day, may we carry with us the understanding and the knowledge that you reign, that you rule, that you are king. May we carry with us an understanding that we have the ear of the king and that we can ask you for anything. And Lord, may we know that we can trust you to give us only what we need, not that will hurt us or hurt those around us. And you'll only do what will glorify you. Thank you for taking that burden off. I can ask you for anything and trust that you only give me the stuff that's supposed to happen. Thank you. Lord, I pray that you would allow me as I move throughout my week, as I speak to people, as I move through them, as we go to our workplaces, as we go to our friends and our families' houses, as we gather together as communities, and as we go and scatter out to the world, may we carry you with us everywhere we go. May we recognize we are your ambassadors who... Lord, represent you, and may we be appropriate representations. May we humble ourselves before you and recognize that you are so, so good. And Lord, may we recognize it in this humility that we have the pleasure of serving you in whatever way you want. And Lord, we praise you for the fact that you reign. Lord, take over our lives. Show us what it means to be appropriate servants and subjects of yours. Show what, what it means to love and glorify you. And Lord God, change us into who you want us to be. Because we want to be more like you. We thank you, Jesus, and we praise you. It's your name we pray. Amen. This time Jacob's going to come up and present offering. No, present communion. Opposite of the offering. This is the, this is the taking. No? Just so you know, I'm going to call you out, Olivia. Um, if you're going to end up uh, doing some babysitting, we're definitely going to 1v1 in something. So it will be Halo, Call of Duty, whatever you want. No, but um, I think that's one of the, the awesome points about humility in general.
and coming before Christ with a surrender mentality or not even seeing um, the difference between responsibility